Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast, brought to you today by Under the Covers Recording. (laughs) (laughs) Had to kind of do an impromptu thing since I am in California and don't have any of my recording equipment. Anyway, how are you doing today, Dars, my co-host? I'm doing all right. I'm trying to keep my life together this very busy fall. How about you? Same, same. Feeling a little bit under the weather. I know. A little bit stuffy. Yeah, there's something going around. Uh, They're doing a lot of construction around here, and I think Mm. it's um, irritated the lining of my sinuses. They're literally doing um, tile work and grinding and stuff like a couple feet from the window. Oh, gosh. I just feel like it's... That's what's going on. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's jump into a couple different things we got going on. So a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on Chowchilla, right? Yeah. So I guess that guy got paroled, right? I know. After 44 years in prison and after 17 previous rejections, the last of the Chowchilla bus kidnappers was granted release by a California parole board on Tuesday. Frederick Woods, now 70 years old, was a 24-year-old when he and his accomplices, James and Richard Schoenfeld, abducted a busload of school kids and their driver in 1976. They drove these guys to a rock quarry where they ordered them to climb down into a buried moving trailer. Those kids, as you recall, aged 5 to 14, and their bus driver, Ed Ray, freed themselves about 16 hours later by stacking mattresses to the surface of that bus... Richard's release was ordered in 2012. James got his in 2015. But Woods continued to engage in financial-related misconduct in prison, according to the California governor, Gavin Newsom, allegedly running several businesses, including a Christmas tree farm behind... What? Right? Behind bars through a contraband cell phone. Oh, I'm rule-breaking. Right? So that's how he was able to do it. I'm angry, frustrated, and disturbed because justice has been mocked in Madera County, said Madera County District Attorney Sally Moreno in a Wednesday statement, adding that Woods' release says a lot about the state of our society and the state Mm. of California right now. Yeesh. So if you want to hear the Chowchilla episode, that one came out. Episode 172, April 17th. Yeah. So got some good stuff in that one. Um, next kind of interesting topic that I knew I had to talk to you about was Missouri school district reinstates spanking as punishment. What? (laughs) We've had people actually thank us. They say was spanking around when you were a kid. No. Yeah. We had spanking. Did you really? It was a thing when I was a kid. No, we did not. We, we like always heard of like the dreaded paddles. But it was never a thing. And my parents spanked us, so it wasn't... Mine did not. It wasn't, like, that surprising that the school districts did as well. And I think it was pretty common when I was a kid to get spanked. I never really got spanked, but my siblings sure did. Yeah. Um, Evidently, a school district in Missouri announced it will reinstate the spanking punishment this year, but only with a parental caveat. The Cassville School District Superintendent Merrill Johnson said he did not take the job a year ago with a plan to reinstate the corporal punishment, a disciplinary measure the 1900 student Barry County District abandoned in 2001. 
holy moly, it was still there in 2001. Yikes. I mean, but not that it surprises me. It's Missouri. Yeah, but still, like, that's... I'm sure it was in a lot of southern schools until pretty recently. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I would have to look that up, honestly. Like, I would be surprised if it was anywhere near me, but I just, I mean... So this guy says... This is something that has happened on my watch, and I'm okay with it. Cassville is a small town with a population of just under 4,000 people, about 60 miles southwest of Springfield. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's very rural. Each family will be asked to opt in or opt out. Um, Cassville is a very traditional community in, in southwest Missouri, Johnson said. And parents have a long expressed frustration that corporal punishment was not allowed in the district. I find that a little surprising, don't you? Um... See, that's the thing. Like, no, I don't find it surprising that it was not allowed in the district. Like, that's why I think it's so, I'm, I mean, it's so confusing that they're bringing it back. Like, under no circumstances would I allow somebody at a school to lay a hand on my child. Well, evidently, this guy says, parents have said, why can't you paddle my student? No. And we're like, we can't paddle your student. Our policy does not support that. Wow. There have, there have been conversations with parents and there have been requests from parents for us to look into it. Johnson said families in Cassville have reacted differently from others on social media from the outside, from outside of the area. We've had people actually thank us for it, he said. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, those on social media would probably be appalled to hear us say these things, but the majority of people that I've run into have been supportive. He added, we respect the decision of every parent whenever the whatever the decision they make. This is interesting, though. In 1977, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled school corporate punishment was constitutional and left the decision to permit it up to each state. Missouri is one of 19 states, most of them in the South, where corporal punishment is still allowed. What? Adjacent states that allow corporal punishment are Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Alabama, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, and Wyoming. Oh my gosh. I'm looking this up. I had no idea. I had no idea either. That's crazy. The road to corporal punishment in Castle started with an anonymous third-party survey of school employees, parents, and students. All three groups identified student behavior and discipline issues as a high concern. We started generating ideas on what we could do, and corporal punishment was one of the ideas, he said. Oh, my gosh. Johnson said that, it, that to his surprise, there was more interest than expected in what he called an old-fashioned disciplinary measure. The district investigated that option along with two others, which were also implemented. The creation of a success academy for students who struggle in a traditional setting and a restriction on cell phones and other internet-based devices at school. Wow. I mean, I agree with the other two. Um, implementations, but not the spanking, clearly. So I just looked this up. I looked up Alabama corporal punishment, and there's this article that says the Public Affairs Research Council of Alabama released data from the U.S. Department of Education that Alabama is one of 11 states where corporal punishment is used more than 100 times statewide in 2018. Yeah. 100 times. Yeah. It's clearly something, it's one of their go-to punishment methods. Good Lord. But in... I did not know this was still a thing. It is. In June, the Cassville School Board approved a policy that allows the use of corporal punishment, but only when all other alternative means of discipline have failed, and then only in reasonable form and upon the recommendation of the principal. Number one, 
how do you determine that everything else has failed? And number two, how do you determine what reasonable form is? That's why I don't like that at all. Because what may be reasonable to one person is clearly not reasonable to everybody, especially in the states where they allow corporal punishment. Because clearly there are people that think corporal punishment is reasonable, and there are many, many people who believe that it's not reasonable. So where's the measuring stick? Right. And how do you, like, who, did you, did who you get is that? the... Did you get what I said? I did get that. <laughs> who is the arbiter of that decision? Like, is it the principal? Is it the school of education director? Like, It says recommendation of the principal. Johnson said it will only be administered by a principal in the presence of a witness and never inflicted in the presence of other students. The policy states when it becomes necessary to use corporal punishment, it shall be administered so that there can be no chance of body inju- bodily injury or harm. Striking a student on the head or face is not permitted. The only corporal punishment allowed is swatting the buttocks with a paddle. I mean, how can they determine that that's not bodily injury? I don't... You can still get bodily injury by swatting someone on the buttocks. Yeah, like, it's just it's just entirely inappropriate. When asked how many swings are allowed, Johnson said only one and possibly two for the younger students and up to three for the older students. I mean, how do they determine that number? Doesn't that seem arbitrary as well? Yes. The policy also requires the principal who would be who approved the corporal punishment to report the reason and details to the superintendent. No one is jumping up and down and saying we want to do this because we like to paddle kids. This is not the reason we should want to do this, Johnson says. But he said students respond in different ways to discipline. Johnson said the district employs a wide range of disciplinary approaches, starting with relationship building and positive reinforcement for good behavior. Detention and in-school and out-of-school suspensions are also options, as well as positive reinforcement. That works with a lot of kids. However, some kids play the game and their behaviors aren't changing. He said the district hopes that possibility of corporal punishment is a deterrent. We understand that's a bit of a shock factor. So if there's one kid or a few kids out there that know there might be a different type of discipline, it might change their behavior. That's literally the same argument they use for the death penalty. Seriously. And it doesn't work. At the end of the 22-23 school year, Johnson and his administrative team plan to look at what influence corporal punishment, the Success Academy, and the cell phone restriction have on reducing student discipline. We go back to the drawing board every year and look at what our needs are and reassess and come back with something different maybe next year. I am a big believer, and this likely comes from my parents who had a very strict no spanking rule in the house that like if you have to resort to physical contact with a child like you're failing i'm not necessarily opposed to spanking if it's needed um, for your own child in your own home however when you (laughs) put in the element of being at school and you've got a principal doing it and you have no idea how hard this guy hits and there's a completely arbitrary sort of measuring to figure out what's reasonable. I mean, it just yeah. could end up being just way out of proportion. I could see lawsuits happening out of this. Absolutely. Like, I can, I mean, I can at least let you make the argument for your own child, spanking your own child, but like, under no circumstances should that take place in a school. Yeah. Well, and he's saying, like, nobody else should discipl- like should physically discipline your child. Like, and if there's a serious discipline issue, that needs to be addressed at home. Yeah. I think so. That doesn't need to be addressed at school. It's interesting because evidently every single parent within the school district has this form that they'll be given and they can opt in or opt out, which I think is their intent to eliminate lawsuits in the event that somebody decides to file one after their kid gets spanked. But it's a slippery slope. Yeah. 
I just don't think it's a good idea. It, it is not a good idea. Yeah. So anyway, interesting stuff. Um, I had no idea that it was still something that was used so so wildly. Me either. That was news to me. Like, it's still used a lot in Al- Alabama. is the number thir- three state in the country, like, as far as usage, behind Mississippi and Texas. It's so widely used. It just blows my mind. It's bonkers. All right. Okay. On to the main topic. Today, we're going to talk about the Velisca axe murders. Have we not done this one? Nope. We talked about Hinter Kaifek. Oh. And we talked about Lizzie Borden. So I'm bringing in the ex murders for the month. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what happened in 1912, because that's what year this whole shebang happened. So in the year 1912, the Republic of China is established. Um, New Mexico was admitted as the 47th state. Yeah. The African National Congress was founded. Mm-hmm. Arizona is admitted as the 48th state. The last emperor of China abdicated the throne, which makes sense if the Republic of China was founded, right? Oh. Albert Berry makes the first parachute jump from a moving plane. Roald Admonson announces his expedition has reached the South Pole December 14th, 1911, so around then. The ill-fated RMS Titanic begins sea trials in April of that year. Um, it also hits an iceberg in the North Atlantic and sinks on April 15th. Mm-hmm. Huge event in 1912. Italy occupies the Greek island of Rhodes. So they're setting up kind of for World War One. Paramount Pictures was founded that year. Massachusetts becomes the first state of the U.S. to set up a minimum wage. Uh, Nova Rupta in Alaska begins. It is the largest volcanic eruption of the 20th century. Oh. I guess that was not including um, Mount St. Helens. I was just wondering that, because I think I think Mount St. Helens is, like, the one that caused the most damage. Maybe that's the first one, because it said this oh, is the okay, second okay, largest okay. volcanic eruption, so yeah. maybe that was the first one. Carl Lamel incorporates Universal Studios, and it's now called Universal Pictures. The Liska Axe Murders mm-hmm. happened in June, middle of the year. The Helsinki Stock Exchange sees its first transaction. Balkan Wars. Mm-hmm. Or First Balkan War begins. Montenegro declares war against the Ottoman Empire. In October of that year, while campaigning in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the former president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. is shot and wounded by John Schrank, a mentally disturbed saloon keeper. With the fresh wounds in his chest, and he's still got the bullet, he goes on to keep speaking. I mean, that was the wild, wild west back then, for real. So really quickly... Villisca is a city in Montgomery County in the U.S. It's got a really small population. As of 2020, there was only about 1,000 people in the census. And it's most notable for this unsolved axe murder, obviously. So Right. You're not far from Iowa. Have you driven through Iowa? I have. I've never driven through, been there. Not go to Villisca, though. Yeah. So we have the Moore family, first and foremost. You have the dad... Josiah, who's about 43 years old. The mom, Sarah, is 39. They have four children. Herman Montgomery, Mary Catherine, Arthur Boyd, and Paul Vernon. Herman doesn't feel like a name that, like, a young person can have. It feels like they're automatically No. Old. It's like you're automatically, like, an 85-year-old man. Yeah. Um, you got 11, 10, 7, and 5. Okay. They were affluent, and they were well-known and liked in the community. 
Um, and they had invited Ina May, who was eight, and Lena Gertrude, again, like a really old name. Mm-hmm. She was 12, to spend the night at their house. Okay. So on this particular night, on June 9th, the family goes to the Presbyterian Church and they participate in the Children's Day program. So the mom, Sarah, was one of the people that helped coordinate that program. And it ended about 9.30 p.m. And at that point, once the program... That seems late. It does, especially for back then when, like, yeah. basically when the sun goes down, everybody goes to bed. Yeah. Um, so the Moore family and those two um, young guests of theirs start walking back to the Moore's house. And they're thought to have arrived at the house between 9.45 and 10 p.m. Okay. That's the last time that anybody sees this family alive. Okay. So on the morning of June 10th, the neighbor gets concerned when she sees the family doesn't come out to do their morning chores. I sound a little bit like the Hinter effect, right? It does. So this nosy neighbor, Mary, knocks on their door and she's like, hello, Sarah. Yeah. Hello. Um, and when nobody answers, she, like, tries to open the door and finds out that it's unlocked, which, mm. again, really? You're just going to walk right in? I guess they no one knew about axe murders back then. <laughs> so this Mary lady, the neighbor, lets the chickens out and calls the dad's brother to come figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So she calls out and she's like, hello, hello, and no one's answering. So... Um, Ross Moore, who is Josiah's brother, unlocks the front door with his own copy of the house key. Okay. And then while Mary, the neighbor, stands on the porch, Ross, the brother, goes in and opens the guest bedroom door, and that's when he finds Ina and Lena, Stillinger's bodies. So the brother immediately tells Mary, the neighbor, to call the peace officer, they call it. And Uh that's not the cops. It's the peace officer. And he gets to the house not long after that. Hank Horton searches the house. It sounds like a character from Dr. Seuss. Yeah, it does. Hank Horton does a quick search of the house. And he finds the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls had all been bludgeoned to death. Mm. So the murder weapon was an axe belonging to Josiah. And it was found in the guest room where the two sisters were located. Okay, these were the guests, or these yes. are the daughters? Okay. The, the guests. Okay. The two sisters, the little guests. Um, it's interesting, because I think in previous cases we've talked about um, the hatchet that was mm-hmm. used for uh, Lizzie Borden. This was an axe. Whoa. Okay. So it's like a bigger weapon. A big, big guy. Yeah, so you're going to do some significant damage right. with that. And I Doctors, would assume, like, because it was found in the guest room, that that means they were killed last. It sounds that way. Yeah. Right? So the doctors then take a look at these bodies, and they determine that the deaths had to have taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. Okay. They find two cigarettes in the attic, which, again, sounds a little bit like the hinter Kaifek thing. Yeah. Where the killer, or killers, because they don't know whether it was one or two people. Right. Evidently, they waited in the attic... Until the Moore family and the Stillinger guests were asleep. So according to what people who um, study this case believe. Right. That the killer or killers started yeah. in the master bedroom. That was, I, I think, your point earlier. Where the mom and dad were sleeping. 
So evidently, the dad received the most blows. Okay. That you know, when compared to any of the other victims, his face had been so mutilated that his eyes were missing. Jeez. And there was a gouge in the ceiling where the Whoa. murderer lifted the axe when he Whoa. was. So he was like intensely going at it. Yeah. Um, the killer or killers then used the blade of the axe on Josiah while using the blunt end on the rest of the victims. Whoa. So, like, essentially he axed the first one and then just beat the rest of them to death with the blunt end of the axe. Interesting. Okay. So, Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul were bludgeoned in the head in very much the same manner as their parents, except with the blunt end. So, they had blunt force trauma and then the father had, like, the sharp force trauma. Yes. Huh. Afterwards, the murderer returned to the master bedroom to inflict more blows. So they're like, hey, we, we didn't get enough in. We're just going to go ahead and get some more blows on Josiah. I mean, this sounds like overkill. Yeah, well, there, it sounds like somebody's really angry at Josiah. Yeah. Um, and at that point, he, I guess, or he or she, knocked over a shoe that had filled with blood. So that's, I mean, this has got to be an extremely grisly yeah. crime scene. So before they moved downstairs to the guest bedroom and they... Okay, and before they killed Ina and Lena, that's when they tipped over that shoe. Mm-hmm. And then a four-pound slab of bacon was just randomly laid out next to the axe. Mm. Which seems so bizarre. That does seem really weird. The When investigating, they also found untouched food and bloody water during the search. So somebody was snacking and washing up. Clearly, right? Huh. Okay. So when they look at this case, they see and they believe that all the victims, except for Lena, were asleep when they were murdered. So except for one of the guest sisters. See, like, that's the thing about these stories that, like, blows my mind is how can this gruesome of a murder of multiple murders happen and nobody wakes up? I don't know. It's so wild to me. Yeah. Um, Evidently, they thought she was awake when she was attacked and tried to fight back. Okay. She was found crosswise on the bed, okay. and she had de- defensive wounds on her arm. Hmm. What was also interesting is her nightgown had been pushed up to her waist, and she was wearing no undergarments. So oh. they think that maybe there was some sexual molestation or oh, no. that sort of a thing, which seems very sad. So a lot of different suspects have come to the forefront on this, uh-huh. including one of the reverends who lived in the area um, and a bunch of other different people. And what's interesting is Reverend George Kelly was tried for the murder twice. Uh-huh. So the, lo- the local reverend, the first trial ended in a hung jury and the second one ended in acquittal. Really? And then all the other people who were being investigated were eventually, like, crossed off the list. So he was the only one who actually went to trial for this? Yes. Who was ever actually charged? He was an English-born traveling minister in town on the night of the axe murders. Oh. Um, witnesses said he was really peculiar and had a mental breakdown as an adolescent. So they were like, this crazy guy must have done it. You know how people were back then. What? How did they know that if he was a traveling minister? Must have interviewed somebody that knew him. Oh, okay. As an adult, he was accused of being a peeping Tom <gasps> mm. and asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. Ew, no. Okay. So, like, no. he's a minister. Yeah. Sounds like a classy guy. 
And he had come into town in June 1912 to teach at the Children's Day Services. Sounds like a quality guy that I'd want teaching my kids. Mm-mm. So he was at the event the Moore family attended June 9th, 1912. Hmm, okay. And he left town between 5 and 5.50 a.m. Okay, so he hopped out of there too sweet. The, the, very, the very next day. Okay. He was like, bye-bye. So I guess he confessed to the murders in court, but the jury didn't believe his confession. And the reason for this is because he was, seemed super fascinated by the case, wrote uh-huh. a lot of letters to the police and to the family of the deceased. So it's really interesting because, like, private investigators wrote back to this guy trying to, like, figure this all out. And he replied back to them with a lot of detail that they didn't think he could have unless he was possibly there. Okay. But he had a lot of mental illness. So right. they thought that maybe he'd imagined it. How do you imagine, like, correct details? I don't know. It seems wild to me. Yeah. And then a couple of years after the murders, he got arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. Hmm. He was sexually harassing a woman who applied for jobs as his secretary. And they sent him away to a mental hospital. Hmm. He was arrested in 1917 for the Valeska murders. And they obtained a confession from him. But then he recanted his confession. And then he had the two separate trials and ultimately was ruled you know, not guilty. Right. There's some speculation that a senator hired somebody to murder the family. Why? I don't know. Nine months before the murders at uh, Valeska, a similar axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas and Paola, Kansas. Hmm. The cases were similar enough to raise the possibility of having been committed by the same person they thought these were linked, as well as the Axeman of New Orleans killings, which occurred around this time as well. There was also some um, axe murders that happened in Birmingham that they think might be related to the New Orleans. So according to the investigation that these guys did at the time, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating to them that the same person probably committed them all. Okay. Okay. Um, in each one of the murders, the victims were hacked to death with an axe and the mirrors in the house were covered. A burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed in a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. So the bloody water. Okay. And then in each one of these cases, the murderer avoided leaving footprints, fingerprints by wearing gloves, which seems like, wow, this person already mm-hmm. knew back then about fingerprints and all that, even though it was very early in like criminal investigation. But this gentleman was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City, but he had an alibi. And he was released for lack of evidence. And then he brought a lawsuit against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. Huh. Okay. A bunch of other dudes were like on this list as well. Somebody named Henry Lee Moore. He was a suspected serial killer who was convicted of the murder of his mother and grandmother several months after the murders at Valeska. Yikes. And he used an axe as well. Okay. Um, and the very similar murders of his mother and grandmother were committed, and all the cases showed striking similarities, leading to strong suspicion that he did this. But um, ultimately, maybe axe was just like the weapon du jour of the time. Well, I mean, I think it was probably a lot harder to get a gun. Yeah. Sam Moyer, Josiah's brother-in-law, often threatened to kill Josiah, so they thought oh. they thought maybe he was the murderer, but sure. he had an alibi. Oh. Um, and then there's another guy by the name of Paul Mueller, and he was suspected as possibly being the one to kill them. Um, and he was also thought to be a serial killer. Um, he was an immigrant, possibly from Germany, and was huh, a subject okay. of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect. 
in the murder of a family in Westbrook, uh, West Brookville, Massachusetts. He was employed there as a farmhand. This is interesting because I think that this similar type of a thing was brought up in the um, Hendrick-Heifet case. That, yeah, part of me also, though, like, because it's 1912, part of me also wonders, like, how much of this is just anti-immigrant. That's, like, that's true as well. Do you know what I mean? But evidently the killer who, who did a lot of these crimes selected families who lived near railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. and was suspected to have traveled in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, he, in all cases, struck and ambushed around midnight when the victims were asleep, used the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and face with the exception of the father. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all used an axe found in the victim's house, and then they left the weapon in plain sight after the murders. All of the victims were covered with blankets to prevent blood splatter, and covered windows from the inside of the house, and the doors were all locked before departure. It seems, again, and this may just be because I'm speaking from 2022, but it seems like a big gamble to assume that somebody would have an axe in their house, but maybe they were a lot more prominent than they are. Oh my gosh, they were so common back then, because people had only wood stoves. They didn't have, like, electricity in a lot of houses. So So it would be like the equivalent of, like, a kitchen knife. Yeah, everybody had an axe. Everybody. And probably a number of axes and a hatchet and all kinds of other things. Because if you, you know, accidentally broke the handle of your axe and couldn't chop wood to put firewood in your stove. Because people had these big, huge metal stoves that cooked, that heated up water for the tub and for different um, bathing and and washing and whatnot in the house. And so you had to keep that bad boy running 24 seven in order to keep the house warm and to provide water for different things. And so it was essential that there was a lot of wood around and then it was probably freaking cold, you know, at certain times of the year. I mean, this is June, so obviously it's not going to be all that cold, but um, you, there's axes were very, very common, Okay, especially in farm kind of situations like those. Oh yeah, that's true. But these murders were never solved, and that's pretty much it. I think it's interesting that, like, they covered all the windows from the inside, and they covered all the mirrors, which was interesting. Yeah. The mirror thing is very interesting. Um, that, part creeps, that part creeps me out more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it was one person or two? Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to conceive how just one person could do it, but I I also don't know that I believe that there's, like, a traveling band of, like, two or more people going around murdering people with axes across the country. I So I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I just don't know. How, how does no one wake up when, like, the sound of mad chopping yeah. is going on is what I want to know. Yeah. Like. It's got to be, it had to have been loud. It has to be so loud. And then he's like eating and just hanging out and smoking. And, and they, so they were never even able to speculate about like a motive. No, because they have no clue who it could have possibly be. I mean, they investigated a lot of different people, relatives, right. people that were, you know, vagrants, people that happened to have been in town during that time period, including that one creepy reverend who was a peeping right. Tom slash sexual harassment creepo. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't seem as though it panned out for anyone. And the one guy, they tried him twice and he got yeah. off full times. I mean, it just sounds, okay. So basically like their only lead is like, they think is a transient person because it, all of these happen near railroads. Yeah. Basically. And they're not even certain that they're related. But I mean, I think that seems like a reasonable thing because cars were not common. So how else are the people going to get around besides just walking? It, well, it makes sense. But I also don't know that like, I'm not sure I buy into the fact that they're all related. 
I don't know either. I mean, it seems plausible. Like, this is a very rural area. Like, there's Birmingham, there's there's New Orleans, there's the Cleveland one. But, like, this just seems like very random location. So, I comparatively. heard a couple other podcasts on this, and I heard that it was, like, some kind of weird, like, circus after the murders happened, and that people came from all over the place to troop through this house and look at the yes. crime scene and... Like have cake and like. I was saying, I take think souvenirs. This is the one where they like made a cake and like people were like just going through eating cake and like walking through the crime scene. And all just that stuff. seems so bizarre to me that somebody yeah. would be that free. I mean, in light of how crazy people are about true crime today, I really don't think it's that surprising. But at the same time, it's like right. They're troop. They're trooping through the crime scene. They're interrupting all the evidence. Like, and no one had the foresight or the thought to like close the scene off, which is just. Mayberry at its finest. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, um, if I'm ever in the area, I think we were in, like, Des Moines, Iowa. Which, let's see how far away that is. Is it near Des Moines? I, I need to see how far it is from Des Moines. Oh, I see. Uh, Alaska. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. So, about 100 miles, give or take. A couple okay. miles. 100 miles southwest. 100 miles southwest of Des Moines. Oh, southwest. So, you're, not, you're probably not going to have, like cause to just be driving through no it'd be a, it'd be a good ways out of your way but i would like to see it it sounds super interesting yeah if it's still there it also sounds very creepy totally i, I don't like rural places like they creep me out in general totally um in any case we're gonna go ahead and wrap the podcast up for the day because i'm my voice is leaving <laughs> sorry guys this is gonna be a short one um, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So we'll post pics. Of, there's lots of good old fashioned pictures of Velisca and the family and all that stuff for this one. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>